0: Good morning, fellowship family. It's because of the blood of Jesus we've been forgiven and redeemed. Amen. We've been made new by his resurrected life within us. So let's stand, let's sing, let's celebrate the work of Jesus Christ this morning together. Sing,
1: remember. Remember those walls that we call sin and shame. They were like prisons that we could not escape But he came and he died
0: and he rose Those walls are rubble now
1: Remember those giants we called death and grave They were like mountains that stood in our way But he came And he died and he rose
0: Those giants are dead now Sing it if you know it, this is This is our God,
1: this is who he is He loves us This is our God, this is what he does He saves us He bore the cross, he beat the grave Let heaven and earth proclaim Saga King Jesus. Mm-hmm. Remember that fear that took our breath away. Faith so weak that we could barely pray. Mm-hmm. But he heard every word, every whisper. Now those altars. the story of his faithfulness No, never once did he fail sin, nobody but Jesus, who pulled me out of that pit, he did, he did, who paid for all of our sins, nobody but Jesus, who rescued me from that grave, Yahweh, Yahweh, who gets the glory and praise, nobody but Pray. Yahweh, Yahweh, who gets the glory and praise, nobody but Him, this is our God, this is who He is, He loves us, this is our God, this is what He does, glad this morning Before the
2: cross beat the
0: train right. We got a video
1: One of the most important programs at the Samaritan Community Center is backpacks for kids. And even though the program only lasts for one day, its effects can be felt over a lifetime. That's because its goal is to equip at-risk kids with the tools they need to succeed in school. By helping 4,000 children in Northwest Arkansas to have the confidence and resources they need to achieve an education, we're investing in the future of our state where it matters the most. As we gear up for the 21st annual Backpacks for Kids event, it's amazing to see our community rally together to make each year better than the last. And Fellowship Bible Church is playing such an important role in supporting our mission. From all of us here at the Samaritan Community Center, I just want to say thank you.
3: Part of our Backpacks for Kids, it's such a blessing to so many students in the area. Like the side says, you can bring uh, supplies to the foyer up until July 16th. Hey, thanks for being here this morning. We're, We're excited you're here. If you're new, we would love to get to know you. And so come find us in the foyer before or after service sometime. We'd love to talk to you, get your number, maybe grab a cup of coffee or a lunch with you. In fact, I was in the foyer last week and I heard somebody say something and I should have addressed it, but I chose not to because I wanted to to fill all of you in on it. See, I was in the foyer last week after service and I heard someone say, hey, there's furniture here. Do you think we could sit in it? And, And I literally heard them ask, can we sit in furniture here at fellowship? And I should have immediately run over them and said, over to them, run over them, and said yes, but I wanna tell you, the answer is yes. If there is furniture somewhere here, you are allowed to sit in it. You see, For the longest time, when we had Fayetteville and Bentonville here, this place was an airport, all right? It was like trying to navigate O'Hare. You had to make your connecting flight, you had to drop off your kids, you had to get where you needed to, and it was almost impossible. But now we got a little more room, we got a little more space, and we got a little more time. And so we want you to feel comfortable here. In fact, we put furniture out in this courtyard in between the student center, the the children's center, and, and this building so that you can just be, sit with your family, have fun. Don't be surprised if some games and some activities for you and your kids show up out there. We want this to be a home for you all. So join us, please, sit in our furniture. We put it out there just in time for the summer heat for you guys. In fact, to beat the heat a little bit, this is what I want you to write down, July 16th. I don't care if you're 15 or 115, we got a swim night at the Rogers Aquatic Center. This is for all of Fellowship Rogers. If you go to church here, you're invited. And we want you to invite your friends and your families. It's a great opportunity just to bring somebody along to help them see who we are and what we do here at Fellowship, which is to enjoy biblical community together. It's free, you can show up. Sam's gonna be in the Lazy River. Mickey said he'll be going down the toilet bowl slide just over and over. And so you are welcome to come. Please, please join us July 16th at the Rogers Aquatic Center. Won't won't you be in the dunk tank? There will be, no, there's no dunk tank there. You'll be in the dunk tank. This guy trying to throw me off. July 16th, come and hang out with us, all right? Hey, uh, we also have some new residents who are here and they're anxious to get to know you as you can tell. There there are other residents here at Fellowship. In fact, the residency program is a program that we have to produce and release spiritual leaders into the vocational world, into vocational ministry. And so Kennedy is on our FSM team. I believe she's back from Colorado and here. Stuart, yes, you can clap for her. Uh, We do that. Stuart and Emma are both on our elementary team, but I have Luke and JP here this morning. And they're on the community team with us, and they specifically work with young adults. And so why don't you guys introduce yourself and tell us what's going on?
0: Yeah, so my name is Juliana, and if you're a young adult here, we just want to welcome you to Fellowship Rogers. We know a lot of people are moving here because of job opportunities or you're a recent graduate from Arkansas. And we want you to know that you are welcome here at the Fellowship Rogers Um, location. Uh, We, me and Luke, and actually our spouses are starting a community group on July 11th, and we would love for you to be a part of it. We also do Thursday night hangouts. Sometimes we play volleyball here on campus, and then sometimes we go get ice cream or food if it's too hot, and so we would love to meet you. We'll be in the foyer after this, and so yeah, just come find us.
3: Hey, fellowship. My name is Luke, and as JP said, we're always in the foyer um before and after service we'd love to meet you um grab a coffee with you um or grab lunch um and then we we always try to gather and sit in the middle of this section on my left y'all's right um and so anyway that's what we got going on well thanks guys we're excited to see what the lord does this year hey fsm it's fun to see some of you sitting with your families many of you up front here for those of you who are in colorado welcome back but here's what i'd ask as we get ready to worship this morning would you stand with us And as we get ready to sing unto the living God, would you remind yourself that you believe in the resurrection of Jesus? Say, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And let's sing to him.
0: assurance of pardon. Thank you. Let's say this together. Church, believe the good news. Jesus Jesus died for us. Jesus Jesus rose for us. Jesus intercedes intercedes for us. In him, we are a new creation. In him, we have forgiveness of sin. In him, we have a savior. To God be the glory forever and ever can be seated, church.
1: Oh, the perfect Son of God In all His innocence You're walking in the dirt with you He knows what living is He's acquainted with our grief man of sorrow, son of suffering Blood and tears How can it be That you're a God who weeps You're a God who bleeds Oh, praise the one reach for me, hallelujah, hallelujah, to the son of suffering. Hallelujah. Some imagine you are distant and removed, but you chased Jesus. us down in mercy To the sinner you were grace, to the broken you embrace, and in the end the proof is in you yeah, in the end the proof is in you Praise the one who would reach for me. Hallelujah to the Son of Suffering. Your cross, my freedom your stripes my healing all praise king jesus glory to god in heaven your blood still speaking your love is still reaching all praise to king jesus
0: glory to
1: god forever your cross is my freedom your stripes My healing, oh praise King Jesus, glory to God in heaven. Your blood is still speaking, your love is still reaching, oh praise King Jesus, glory to God.
2: to go.
0: What good news? Can we just celebrate that good news right now? That because of Jesus, he causes us to be able to stand before him. That we don't have to cower or come to him with fear. We don't have to be motivated by fear. There is no condemnation for those of us who were in Christ regarding our sin. Amen. Because we know he's not holding that stuff against us. We know that King Jesus dealt with the sin issue two thousand years ago on a cross and he did he did a fine job amen (laughs) i would say jesus got it right and so though we still stumble and we still fall the lord's not dealing with us based on our behaviors he's not dealing with us on our ability or inability to get it all together yet he loves us he cares for us he knows everything. Still, he has mercy for us. His mercy is new every morning. Amen, amen. I don't even want to quit singing this song with y'all, but we have to because we've got a time. Uh, we've got some, Some. We, we, we try to stay on track here. So why don't we just lift our hands if you want to do that, just add a, 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 a sign of thankfulness to, to Jesus, Abba. So Abba, we thank you so much for the price that you paid in and through Jesus Christ. We thank you that it's because of his sacrifice we can stand here clean and close and that we don't have to fear when we approach you about all the stuff we just can't get together and that you're here to help us and you're here to guide us and you're here to comfort us. So, Father, we just thank you for the love and the grace and the mercy that you've shown us in no greater way than that of through Jesus Christ. We praise you, we thank you, and we say amen.
3: Well, hey, I, everyone, one more time. Can you say amen? Amen. amen. It, it is good to respond, okay? So just know, just like you can sit in the furniture, you can respond here too. We want you to say amen if you're feeling it. Hey, we're gonna continue in the sixth week of our Rhythms series. And in this series, we're talking about different spiritual practices and spiritual disciplines. You know, one of the issues, though, that I've seen is I think sometimes it's difficult for us to fully explain what a spiritual discipline is. We don't really know how to express what the point or the purpose of the spiritual practices are. And so I wanna spend a little time this morning doing just that. In fact, the students have probably heard me say this a million times, I'm so sorry, but the way that I like to explain what spiritual disciplines are is through a little story of a gardener. So, so let's jump in. Let, let's say that I told you that I was a gardener, a really good gardener which is absolutely not true about me. I can't make anything grow. But let's say for the sake of the story that I say, hey, I've got an amazing garden, it's beautiful. I know how to make things grow. I can just cultivate fruit from the ground. And so you look at me and you say, well, prove it. And so I invite you over to my house. I say, come on over. You show up into the driveway. I open up the garage and I begin to point things out to you. And I say, look at this rake. Hey, check that over there, that's a 50-foot hose, and I hold up some, some work gloves that got dirt on them, I spin you around, I'm like, and look at this. And I show you some loppers, those things that are like big scissors that cut things down. What would you say to me? Ho- hopefully you would laugh at me and just go, Caleb, that doesn't prove anything. Th- those are just tools. If I wanted to prove to you that I was a gardener, what would you have to see? Well, you'd probably have to ha- actually have to see some growth. You'd have to see some vegetation. I I would actually have to show you some fruit, right? You see, there is a difference between a tool and a proof in this world. And, And we understand that. But the same logic applies to our faith. If I told you, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm a Christian, and you looked at me and you said, well, prove it. And so I whip out my Bible really quick and I go, look, I read this last week. And then I look at you and I go, oh, and on Wednesday, I didn't eat because I was fasting. What would you say to me? Well, hopefully the same thing. I mean, maybe you would be nice, but you go, Caleb, that doesn't actually prove anything. Because what's the proof of someone being a follower of Jesus? Well, it's a lifestyle that looks like Jesus, right? The proof of someone following after Jesus is in the fruit of righteousness. The Bible says that the proof of someone following after Christ is the fruit of the Spirit. That's what Galatians 5 calls it. The scriptures literally say that the fruit of the Spirit, the byproduct of the Holy Spirit indwelling someone are things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. I can't, without singing the song, I don't know all of them, but it's like love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, right? That's the fruit of the Spirit. That is the proof of our faith in Jesus. There's a difference between a tool and a proof. And the same thing is true within our faith. The tools of our faith are the spiritual disciplines. That's the things like prayer, fasting, tithing, confession, silence, solitude, meditation, scripture reading, attending church, being in community. Those are all tools of our faith that God has given us. The proofs of our faith are what we talked about, what the Holy Spirit Spirit produces within us. It's the sanctifying work of God. Our job as followers of Jesus is to use the tools. I'm incapable of making the proofs of my faith. I am incapable of cultivating the fruit of righteousness in my life. I'm capable of using the tools that God has given me. And as I do graciously, his Holy Spirit brings about the proof of my faith. You see, sometimes we get these mixed up though. We want the the tools of our faith to be the proof of our faith. And we'll say things like, oh, I'm, I'm a Christian because I read my Bible. That's just not true. No, 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 I, I read the scriptures because I'm a faithful follower of Jesus. And as I read the scriptures and use that tool that he's given me, I believe that the Holy Spirit begins to transform me, to create a new heart in me, to renew me. There's a difference between a tool and a proof. This series is all about how we use the tools of the faith and what the tools of the faith are. See, this week we're talking about confession. You guys are really excited. And I get it, this, is, this isn't one of the tools that we love. We, we, we don't like the idea of a confession. In fact, there's probably a lot of you in here who have been hurt by this. That confession has almost been wielded against you, used against you to shame you. Look, if that's you, I, I, I get that. That's part of my story. And I'm sorry, but we're not gonna do that here. No, we're gonna look at what the Lord says confession is because remember, it's a tool that God has given us. And what I want us to do is understand how God has intended us to confess so that he can produce his likeness within us. You see, when I was growing up, my parents had a a tree in their front yard. Uh, in, In fact, in their front yard, there was this fence that went around it. And the tree would butt right up against the fence And one of the branches that came up off this tree would extend out over the edge of the fence. And as a little boy, I loved to climb that tree. Each afternoon, I would run out there and I'd get up on that tree and I liked to shimmy out on that branch that extended past the fence. Because for me in that moment, I felt so brave. I just felt like I was on an adventure. I was outside of the front yard, but I was still rooted in the the safety of my parents' home. And I would sit out there and I would begin to daydream this little young Branson boy daydreaming. I remember thinking, man, I wanna do big things. I, I wanna be like David. I actually remember saying that. I wanna be somebody who has the faith to conquer giants and is actually brave enough to protect his sheep from the predators that attack. And I, I actually think, as I look back to it, it's, it's probably one of my most innocent memories as a kid because it's where I truly remember beginning to pray. See, in that tree, as I would daydream about what I would hope to be and hope to do, I remember praying, asking the Lord to use me. Jesus, would you use me? Would you make me like David? I wanna be, I wanna be someone that you can use, Lord. I wanna be somebody who is a man after your own heart, just like you called David. That's what I wanted. That's what I, that's what I would sit and dream of in that tree. And then life set in. You see, I climbed down from that tree one afternoon And it's like the daydreams and the ideas that I had of being unified with the Lord just seemed to dissipate and seemed to be impossible. Because as I grew up, so did my sin. And these actions of sinfulness that I was engaging in became habits and these habits became addictions and the addictions, they became full-blown desires. And in my desire for sinfulness, I ran into hiding and in the hiding, embarrassment crept in. And embarrassment invited its friend shame and shame began to live in my life and teach me all these lies of evil saying, Caleb, you'll never be a man after God's own heart. You'll never be unified with the Lord. You'll never find peace with Jesus. You'll never actually do anything in this life because your sin is too big. And I believed that. I believed that I was too far gone, that my sins were too grave. And so confession was completely out of the picture for me because I thought that if I confessed, then I'd never be known and I couldn't bear the pain of thinking that I might not be known in this life. So I ran all by myself. That dream of being like David was completely wiped out. The idea of ever walking with the Lord was just stripped from me. You see, David's got an interesting story too, though. Because oftentimes we remember him for being the king, we remember him for taking down Goliath, we remember him for being a great shepherd. But we forget part of his story too. You see, it says it happened late one afternoon as David was out on the balcony of the king's palace. He was walking around and he looked out and he saw a beautiful woman bathing. So he asks his men, he said, who is that? And they say, well, that's Bathsheba. That's the, that's the wife of Uriah, one of your soldiers who's out fighting. And David says to his men, we'll go get her. And so they go, he sends them for Bathsheba. They bring her back to him. David sleeps with Bathsheba and then sends her home. And some time passed, Uriah's still out fighting, and eventually Bathsheba sends word to David, and she says, I'm pregnant. David, I'm unsure of what he's thinking in that moment, but I know what he does. He actually sends for Uriah, and he brings Uriah back from battle. And as Uriah ends up at the king's palace, David looks at him and goes, Hey, buddy, hey, you've been fighting really hard, so why don't you go home? Here's a candle, set the mood, and why don't you just sleep at home tonight? And Uriah looks at him and he goes, no. The, the, the Ark of the Covenant is out at battle. The, the other men are fighting. I, I'm not sleeping at home. And so David begins to up the ante a little bit and he actually says, well, you're not staying here one night. I want you to stay here two more nights. And, and, and David begins to feed Uriah and actually gets him drunk in an attempt to get him to sleep with his wife. And David looks at him and says, go home. Sleep with your wife. And Uriah says, No. He sleeps on the footstep of his door and actually goes back to the battle. And as Uriah is heading towards the battle, so is a message from King David. David sent a message following Uriah to the commander saying, hey, let this man go into the hardest part of the fight. And then when he's out there fighting in the deepest part of the battle, I want you to withdraw all the other men around him so that he might be struck down and killed. And that's exactly what happened. David received word sometime later that Uriah was killed just as he had commanded. Time passed, David still hasn't said anything and eventually the prophet of God, Nathan, shows up at David's door and Nathan begins to tell David a story. He looks at him and he says, hey, there's two men in the kingdom. One of them has lots of wealth and influence. One of them has lots of livestock and sheep and the other has next to nothing. Nothing. But this man who has much actually took from the man who has little. He abused his influence and power and mistreated the man with nothing. And David hears this story of the, of the, the man in the kingdom and he's outraged. He actually looks at Nathan and he goes, who is this man? He deserves to be punished because he's done what is evil in the sight of God. And in one of the most chilling verses in the scriptures, Nathan looks at David And he says, you are that man. David, you're the murderer. David, you're the adulterer. David, you're the hypocrite that couldn't even see this as you. You're the one who has done evil in the sight of God. And Nathan begins to explain to David that there's consequences because of his sin, that there'd actually be hardship between him and his sons, and that the son that he bore with Bathsheba would die. David hears this and he falls on his face. He begins to confess and repent, weep, fast, and mourn. And it's here in this time of mourning after being convicted by God through the prophet of Nathan that David writes Psalm 51. You see, I think Psalm 51 could almost be read as the words of response that David gives to God and to Nathan. I know it's a lot of words and we're talking about confession, but I'm gonna make it easy for us. I want us to look at just a few verses, verses one and two, three and four. We'll look at five and six, and then we're gonna jump down to 10. And then we're just gonna take a little gander at the back half of this psalm. And you see, I think if we look at how David confessed, and we see what he did, it can actually teach us something about confession for us. And what it would look like for us in our life. You see, David starts his Psalm of Confession in verse one saying, Have mercy, O God, on me, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. David begins his confession, pleading to God for mercy. And remember, mercy is not getting something that we deserve. But what's interesting to me is that David bases his plea for God's mercy in God's love. He says, have mercy on me according to your steadfast love. Those two are inseparable for David. He wants mercy as vast as God's love is, as wide as God's love is, as deep as God's love is. And I think that's so important because what we see is that for David, repentance is rooted in a trust of God's love for him. David understands that repentance is rooted, it's grounded in a trust of God's love. And I actually, I think that's necessary for us. That when we repent, we would have a built-in trust of the person that we are repenting to. In fact, it's one of the biggest problems or one of the biggest roadblocks that we typically have that I have to repenting and confessing. When I wrong a loved one, a friend, or a family member, it can be difficult for me to repent to them because I oftentimes believe the lie that they don't love me enough to actually accept my confession, that they would forgive me, and the same is true with God. That oftentimes, I don't wanna bring my sinfulness to the Lord because I'm afraid that maybe this would be the time that his love would run out. Not for David. David understands that repentance is always rooted in a trust to God's love. He even says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. From the beginning, David brings the problem to the Lord. He doesn't skirt around it, and the problem for David is his sinfulness. He goes on in verse 3 saying, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me this idea of his sin and transgressions ever before me, in light of the story that we now know of David, I think it could be a few things. One, this could be happening in the week that the child that he bore with Bathsheba is still alive. After his conviction, pre the death of that child, and so David is almost alluding to the the, the haunting reality that the consequence of his sin, this child dying is still before him in the other room. And he's weeping and mourning the harsh reality that he's made a mistake and his mistake has consequences. It could also be just a general appeal to his sinfulness, that David's willing to say, look, Lord, you have convicted me and I understand my guiltiness. It's ever before me, to the point that he says, against you and you only, God, have I done what is, I have sinned, have I done what is evil in your sight? You know, for a while, some people, there there was a camp that would say, well, David was the king, and so since he was the king, he's only accountable to God. And so that's why he says, only against you have I sinned, God. And so he's really just, he needs to repent unto the Lord. And to be really frank and honest with you, I just, I, I don't find that argument compelling at all. For, for several reasons. And one of the simplest would be, it's, it's pretty clear that David sinned against some other people call it harassment, call it abuse, call it adultery, whatever it is you wanna call it, David has clearly sinned against Bathsheba. And he had Uriah murdered. He has clearly sinned against Uriah. He's sinned against the kingdom as he's misused his leadership. He's sinned against the people of God as he's led them astray by demonstration. You see, when when David says against you only have I sinned, I think David is offering the deepest level of confession saying, I've sinned against everyone, so much so that I've sinned against you, God, to the point that you are justified in your words. You're blameless in your judgment. Nathan had told David that there would be consequences for his sin. David acknowledges that. But he doesn't just acknowledge that there's consequence for his sin. He actually says, God, you're justified in disciplining and punishing sin. You see, David has no problem bringing his guilt before the Lord. To the point that he begins to write, behold, I, I was brought forth in iniquity. David deepens this confession saying, in birth I was sinful. He even says it outright, he says, in sin did my mother conceive me. In sin did my mother conceive me. I wanna spend just a, a little bit of time here because I wanna point out what, what he's not doing first. You see, when David writes this line in Psalm 51, he is not blaming his mother for his sin. This is not him trying to get out of responsibility. And it's also not a, it's not a sexist statement. The God that we serve is not a sexist God and David is not here saying, oh, this is women's fault, they've conceived us. Well, I can't help but do wrong. That's not at all what's happening. In fact, what is happening here is David is just admitting, he's confessing that he himself is, is sinful, so much so that he's saying, I'm not just guilty of doing something wrong, I'm actually guilty of having a nature that is bent towards sin, that I have a propensity towards sin. You see, I think what David is describing here is what we would call inherited sin, right? We as followers of Jesus believe that we're guilty of sin by more than just doing quote-unquote bad things, we as followers of Jesus, we as Christians, believe that we're guilty of sin in three ways. I wanna look at them really quick. The first way that we believe that we're guilty of sin is called imputed sin. Imputed sin is the idea that because one human sinned, then all humans are guilty following that first human, right? Because one is guilty, then that, impute, or that guilt is imputed to all of humanity. And we don't like imputed sin, because it, it, honestly, I hear a lot of people say, well, that doesn't seem fair. Just because Adam ate an apple, I'm guilty? And I get that, but to that, I would respond and say, you know what else is unfair? Imputed righteousness. The very fact that because one man was, lived a life that we couldn't and was righteous when we were not, we're given his Cleanliness, You see, imputed sin is the fact that we're guilty because one man was sinful. Imputed righteousness is the beautiful reality that we're clean because Jesus was. And we're not just guilty of imputed sin, but we're, we're also guilty of inherited sin. Inherited sin is actually what I think David is talking about here in Psalm 51. And it's the idea that because all are guilty of sin, there's this sin nature that is passed down. And what I mean by sin nature, all humanity is built in and created in the image of God. You do not lose that. But that in the fall, corruption did occur. And that we have a nature, like I said, that has a propensity towards sin, that we're bent towards it. We have a desire to run away from the Lord. But God actually does have an answer for this inherited sin problem too. And the answer is the second coming. That when Jesus comes back, he'll redeem the heavens and the earth, and we'll obtain the resurrection. And in that new resurrected man, or Jesus will actually give us a new nature. We'll be fully redeemed. We'll have a nature just like his that doesn't want to run from him, but wants to be with him. The third way that we're guilty is what we call personal sin. And this is the idea that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that we've all made personal decisions to enact or to act out our sin nature, right? Well, guess what? God has has an answer to that as well, and it's called sanctification. The process of being made holy, being made like God, this is the process that the Holy Spirit works within our life. This is the process of God making the proofs of our faith present within us. You see, we're guilty of imputed sin. What's God's answer? Justification. Imputed righteousness. We're guilty of inherited sin. What's God's answer? Glorification. The final redemption is he completely renews us. And we're guilty of personal sin. What's the answer? Sanctification. The process of God making us more and more like him. So if I had to pinpoint it back to Psalm 51, when David says, in sin did my mother conceive me, I think he's talking about inherited sin. But in general, what he's saying is that he's guilty of more than just doing some wrong things. He's guilty of being a human being that actually desires to run away from the Lord. He's guilty of having a sin nature. And because he says that, that's why he can actually write the next line that says, but behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. David begins to note that God doesn't just want to change David's decisions God actually wants to create a a, a new being in him. He wants to put truth in the inward place. David is saying that God wants to rework his very being, that he wants to give him a new nature. So much so that David even says, it's you, God, who teaches me those things. You're the one who teaches me wisdom in the secret heart. You're the one who shapes me. David brings his guilt. He uses the tool of confession. God produces newness. He makes the fruit. In verse 10, David goes on to say, create in me a clean heart. O God, renew a right spirit within me. He asks the Lord simply to make him new, to wash him clean, to give him a heart that desires good, that seeks what is just, to seek after God. And as you're reading through this within the whole context of the psalm, it's pretty clear. This is a great example of justification by grace through faith, isn't it? He just asked for something. David doesn't make a deal with God. He doesn't say, hey, look, I'll do X if you forgive me, and then I'll do Y, and then you give me a new heart. David understands that he's not earning anything here, that he's not not doing anything that will make God forgive him. He understands that he's just asking for forgiveness. In fact, this idea of not earning forgiveness is furthered in the psalm where later on, he actually writes, you'll not delight in a sacrifice or i would give it you'll not be pleased by a burnt offering the sacrifices of god are a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart o oh god you will not despise you see david says outright the sacrifice that he could offer doesn't actually appease god but it's the attitude of repentance that pleases god You see, the the attitude of repentance is what the Lord is after. And that's what a sacrifice demonstrates. The sacrifice is a symbol of that attitude because there's only ever been one sacrifice that truly paid the price of our sins. And which sacrifice was that? It was Jesus. As he hung on a cross on our behalf. David even writes, "Then, then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole offerings the bowls will be offered on your altar you see david knows that he's not earning forgiveness so much so that he clarifies and says look you don't you, you don't even want a sacrifice before you you forgive me and then a right sacrifice is a sacrifice that is given in a response of thankfulness A right sacrifice isn't given to try and earn something. A right sacrifice is given to demonstrate my thankfulness and acceptance and reality of seeing that you, God, have just chosen to forgive me. This is Psalm 51, kind of in a nutshell, that David actually says, have mercy on me. Let your mercy be as vast as your love because I trust that you love me. The problem that we're dealing with here, Lord, is my sin, and I'm guilty of more than just bad things. I'm guilty in general. Would you, would you make me new? Would you create in me a clean heart? And then I'll respond in Thanksgiving because it's you who gives, not me who earns. I actually think that can teach us something about confession. You see, we so often think that confession is a, a means of earning forgiveness. It's not. Confession is aligning ourselves with the Lord, seeing him for who he is, and letting that tell us who we are. You see, David knew he wasn't earning anything. All he did was bring himself before the Lord, bring his guilt before Jesus, before God, offer it to him, trusting that God loved him and would restore him see, David wasn't a man after God's own heart because he lived such a great life. He was a murderer. No, David was a man after God's own heart not because of how righteous he was. David was a man after God's own heart because he let the righteousness of God live through him. David's a man after God's own heart not because he lived perfect, but David is a man after God's own heart because of the way that he repented, which gives hope to that kid that would hang out in that tree in my parents' front yard. To that kid that believed the lies for so long that his sin was actually too big for Jesus to forgive. The fact that David was a man after God's own heart because of the way he repented gives hope to all of us. That there is no sin that can withhold you from the love of Jesus if you're willing to bring it to him. Because the reality is, when we understand in the Christian faith that repentance always leads to relationship, we should be running to Jesus to offer him our wrongdoings. Because ultimately, confession is a submission unto God's love. It's us bowing before him as we admit our guilt. We can put away the misconceptions that we we have about, uh, about confession a little bit. The first is this. Confession is not a shaming incident. If it's ever been used against you in that way, I'm so sorry. There's no room for shame here. Confession isn't about God hurting you. It's about God healing us. And confession isn't about forcing you to relive your past failures. It's actually about inviting God to live and shine through our failures. You see, confession is a tool that God has given us, an amazing tool that we get to admit our guilt and he gets to offer us his love. As we go to him and we confess our anger, he produces love in us. As we go to him and we confess our our pride, he produces joy in us. As we go to him and confess our unrighteousness, he produces righteousness. You see, confession is an act of humility, but one that has great reward. Charles Spurgeon, when he's writing about David and Psalm 51, he says this it's not the punishment that he cries against, but the sin. See, many a murderer is more alarmed by the gallows than at the murder that brought him to it. The thief loves the plunder, though he fears the prison. Not David. Now, he's sick of sin as sin. His loudest cries are against the evil of his transgression and not against the painful consequences of it. David knew how to repent, and how he repented was to admit his guilt so that he could submit to God's love. Listen to these lines. When we deal seriously with our sin, God will deal gently with us. When we deal seriously with our sin, it is the God of the universe who will deal gently with us. When we hate what the Lord hates, to our joy and to our peace, he will soon make an end of it. Confession is a tool. It's a tool that God has given us. And as we use the tool, he produces the fruit within us. So how do we use that tool? Well, Paul David Tripp actually in his New Morning Mercies has a a line where he talks about confession. And he gives three steps. And his three steps are this. He says, see your sin, grieve your sin, and then confess your sin. And as the elements for communion are being passed out right now, grab those, but this is what I want us to do. I want us to partake in this three-step process. And I promise it's not make all your worries go away, but it's simple. I want us to take a moment and actually pray that God would reveal to us our sin, that we would see it. Pray something like, Lord, would you, would you open my eyes? Make me aware of how I've fallen short, how I have moved away from you. Jesus, convict me. Because remember, the conviction of the Holy Spirit is one of the most loving things that the Spirit can do. Because after conviction comes confession and from confession comes relationship. So pray and ask the Lord to convict you to see your sin and then begin to grieve it. Ask God to break your heart for what breaks his. Ask him to help you see the gravity of your sin to realize the depravity that we walk in and then confess it, offer it to him. Those things that you've seen, those things that you grieved, then give it to Jesus. Remember trusting that he forgives, that he takes our sin and he separates them from us as far as the east is from the west. This is one way that we can use that tool of confession. The other way is through communion. And communion is a practice that we invite all those who have professed their faith in Jesus to engage in. And what we do in communion when we take the elements is we remember the night that Jesus was betrayed, that he took the bread, he broke it, he gave thanks, he said, this is my body broken for you. And he took the cup, he poured it, and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. It's been spilled for the forgiveness of sins, for the forgiveness of your sins. You see, when we take communion, what we do is we actually remember that there is one sacrifice who ever actually paid the price for our sin, and it's Jesus. We remember what he did for us. And we also remember that it is God who forgives us because he chooses to. So what I'm gonna ask you to do is I'm gonna ask you to actually take a moment. We're not gonna take communion together this morning. You're gonna take it as an individual. You can take it with your family, the people you're sitting with, but you're gonna take it when you're ready. But to get ready this morning, pray through these three steps. Ask God to show you your sin. Ask him to break your heart for what breaks his and then offer it to him. And after you've offered it to him, then take communion. And after you've taken communion, let me add one more. Rejoice. You know, Tim Keller says that true repentance is always followed by rejoicing because when you repent to Jesus, guess what happens? You're forgiven. And so we rejoice in that. We don't sit and grovel in our sin. We don't hold on to that which we've already given to him. When you confess it unto the Lord, stand up then and praise him because repentance unto Jesus leads to relationship, not rejection. That's the God that we serve. That's the God who renews the right spirit within us. That's the God who gives you a clean heart. That's the God that you can't get away from his love. Take a moment, confess. Take communion and then rejoice with us.
1: Upon a hill, a perfect Savior, upon that day, the greatest love, the punishment that should have fallen on us, was upon him, was upon him, upon his head, a crown of thorns. Upon His heart, the broken world, the weight of sin, all the weight of our transgressions, was upon Him. Was upon Him. Christ has
0: died.
1: We are forgiven in Christ alive are the risen and he shall come again. Praise the King, praise the King upon our hearts. of salvation upon him, upon him, and we sing out that Christ has died, we are forgiven in Christ alive. we are the risen and he shall come again, praise the King, praise Just with the feet. Oh, Jesus, there's no greater name than that, Jesus, and every knee will bow Yes, every heart can.
0: Let us rejoice in this next song. Go ahead, Seth. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Amen.
1: What love could remember, no wrong omniscient and all knowing he still counts not their son thrown into a sea with no bottom on shore our sins they are many his mercy is more Praise His mercy is
0: more He's so gracious
1: What patience would wait What patience would wait As we constantly roam What father so tender Is still calling us home He welcomes the weakest The violent for my sins, they are many. His mercy. kindness, He's lavished on us. His blood was the payment, His life was the cost, for we stood neath the debt we could never afford. While our sins might be
0: fear, but by love, grace, and mercy given to us freely in and through Jesus Christ. The Sloans are in the prayer room this morning. If you need prayer, it's down this hallway.